Project Echelon is just a Midwestern bike racing team. They're not even an elite team. Okay, they're an elite team, but they'll never win the big races on the East or the West Coast. They're just good where they are. Okay, well, maybe they can win a couple of the big races on the East and West Coast, and they can do some good stuff, but they're, they're not good enough to win any of the major stage races. Okay, so they win back-to-back -back Redlands. That We just got to acknowledge that, but they're not elite at an elite level in the country. Oh, wait, they got second at Road Race Nationals in 2022 and only got beaten by a pro road tour team in human-powered health? Um, well, oh, they clearly can't race crits. Absolutely not. Oh, wait, Brandon Fury is the overall champ for the American Criterium Cup. Ethan Crane is the overall champ for the Young Riders competition, and those two went 1-2? Um, well, maybe that's just a fluke. 2022 is a fluke. Wait, how many races did Tyler Stites and Ricky Arnopel already podium in this year? Oh, well, Project Echelon's just a breakaway team. They can't win a sprint at all. Cade Bickmore responds, hold my beer. Today's guest, Cade Bickmore, Project Echelon Racing, is a standout sprinter. He has been given the liberty and the freedom by joining Project Echelon, a team of professionals, to do what he does really, really, really well, which is finish races fast. If you critique them as not something, they will prove you wrong. That's who Project Echelon is at its heart. It is a team that is dedicated to proving all of their critics wrong. We started this effort with Project Echelon back in 2021 at the end of the year to tell their story. This effort, of course, is the Project Echelon Files, our continuing saga of interviews with specific riders from the team talking about who they are, what they are, and where they're going. In 2022, we focused on Ricky Arnopel, Ethan Crane, and Monk, aka Brandon Fury, to talk about their experiences as they went through the course of the year. We're continuing that on, but we're expanding it now to newer riders, to riders that we didn't have an opportunity to meet last year because they're new to the team. For example, Cade Bickmore. Cade came up through A.E. Volo, to Texas Roadhouse, and now to Project Echelon. Cade has won a lot of bike races, but this year he started to win a lot of big bike races to go along with that a lot part. This year, he has already finished on the podium at Redlands in the Criterium. He has already finished on the wide-angle podium at Gila in a good old-fashioned normal road race and won the stage Criterium race all by himself. He is a great sprinter. He has got men around him who can do what they need to do to put him in a good spot. The critique about Project Echelon has always been that it's not fancy enough. They're not splashy enough. There's not enough bling that comes with them. There's not enough pizzazz to get the attention of the media, to get the attention of the announcers, to get people to pay attention to the results that this team keeps churning out week in and week out. That's what the purpose of the Project Echelon Files is, is to bring notoriety to a group of professionals who are doing their job and doing their job exceptionally well. 
My name is Rob Kelly. This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. WideAnglePodium.com is your source for the best in the internet, in the galaxy, in the universe's collection of independent cycling media. We are independent cycling media as far as we can tell after all of the reductions elsewhere. Go to WideAnglePodium.com, take a look at the shows that we have on the network. We've got gravel racing, mountain biking, cyclocross, road racing, uh, indoor racing, whatever type of racing that happens on rail bikes with Matt Allen and the guys at Slow Ride Podcast. We've got what you want, what you need, and what we hope you will be interested in as far as bike racing and commentary about it. WideAnglePodium.com. Please support this content creator-owned effort. This week, super exciting news. We have a brand new sponsor for our show, Caldera Labs. Say goodbye to generic face wash on your counter because Caldera Lab is here to save the day when it comes to your skin and your skincare regime. We have to admit, we are rough on our skin as bike racers. It just comes with the nature of being outside, with sweating, with suntan lotion, with the sun itself, with cold weather, with wet weather, with all the things that we put ourselves through, we are rough on our skin. We need to treat ourselves and we need to treat ourselves well or else we will age way quicker than we need to. And just because you're a master's racer doesn't mean that you need to look like a master's racer. Get me, guys? Caldera is backed by leading clinical trials where nine out of 10 men experience healthier and visibly improved skin. It has what the tools that we need to unlock your best first impression and the confidence that goes with looking your best. Today, we have an exclusive offer for anybody who goes to calderalab.com and uses our promo code CRITERIUMNATION at checkout. You'll get 20% off their best line of products. So come with me on this journey over this next month. I have just received my Caldera Lab package. There are four components to the package that I've got, the clean slate, the base layer, the good, and an eye cream that goes with all of them, the icon. So I am going to be using this product for the next month, and I'm going to tell you all about it, the good, what I like about it, and how, most importantly, it's making me feel better with my skin. So we're going to start with what is the regimen. It's their bundle. It's a twice-a-day routine to transform your skin. I will start with the Clean Slate, which is a cleanser that uses a gentle plant-based cleansing solution to leave your skin exceptionally refreshed. On top of that, I will put the base layer on. It's just like cycling clothes. You know, you start at the bottom and you work your way up. The base layer is a nutrient-dense fortifying moisturizer that hydrates your skin and absorbs fast and will leave you feeling with a matte finish, not the shiny finish that comes at the end of a bike ride, but the nice matte finish so you can start your day off confidently. I'll put some of the eye cream on, the icon, and then go about my day. Come back, clean up everything, wash my face again at night, and apply the good, which is their clinically proven multifunctional nighttime serum, which will help tighten my skin, make it look smoother, and help reduce the visibility of wrinkles and fine lines. I do have those around my eyes. Don't look too closely at any of the pictures. So, Caldera Lab. Com. Caldera is C-A-L-D-E-R-A. Lab is lab. 
criteriumnation.com. Use the promo code criteriumnation, all one word for 20% off. So let's get into it here with Cade Bickmore, the standout from AE Volo to Texas Roadhouse and now Project Echelon. We're talking to him about sprinting and we're doing that right now. My name is Cade Bickmore. I'm from Denver, Colorado, and I race for Project Echelon Racing. Project Echelon is new to you and you to it this year in 2023. Before then, you came through kind of the the prestigious route of other teams through college and in the beginning. So, you know, take us back 2019, 2020, 2021, you know, where have you come from in order to get to where you are here? Yeah, so 2019 was my first season with a Volo under 23. Um, that was a big, big deal for me uh, because it was kind of my first, uh, I mean, it was my first UCI contract. It was kind of my first step onto um, one of those bigger national level teams, you know, I, as a junior, I'd always dreamed of like, you know, racing for hot tubes, racing for Lux or specialized NCCF were like the, the three kind of top national level teams, um, when I was younger. And then when, when there was the 23 ranks, it was, uh, action Hoggins, Berman, and this new team that started in 2017, I think, uh, Evolo. And so that, that was a really big deal for me to sign with Evolo. Um, and I was really pumped for it, got thrown straight into the deep end, um, with tour Columbia, which was a 2.1, uh, Chris Froome was there. Uh, Superman Lopez was there, you know, Fernando Gaviria, all, all these big name, Taylor Finney, all, all these big name guys who, you know, I've been watching on TV forever, uh, and, and were my heroes. And I was like racing against them in my first UCI stage race ever. I'd never done any of the UCI stage races in the States before that point. So I spent three years with a Volo after that. Um, two of them were uh, kind of marred by COVID, you know, COVID hit in early 2020 and then kind of continued pretty much canceled everything until May of 2021. Um, but I, so I guess in those two seasons, there was maybe only one season there, but I uh, made the most of it and you know, I, had a, I had a great time. When you said that right there, about Evolo, I suddenly remembered you for no other good reason than Boise Twilight in 2021 when you went off the front with, I think it was Scott McGill or somebody else like that yeah, from yeah, Evolo. Scott. Right at the beginning, like it's a hundred plus degrees outside, you know, it's a 90 minute something or 75 minute race, and there was you. And Scott going off the front right there at the beginning. And that was kind of my introduction to the Avolo theory of life, which is don't think, attack. And then when you get brought back, attack again. And it, and I've loved everything about that. Like, can you tell us about, like, what were you guys, like, thinking? Like, what was going through your mind? You had to know that that was the longest of long shots 
on a four corner flat crit, but like you went all in. Yeah. I mean, uh, those opportunities might only work out 5% of the time, but on that team, we were, we were looking for that 5%. We were looking for that crazy result just to kind of set you apart from everything. Nobody remembers who got third at Boise Twilight last in 2021, let alone fifth or sixth or whatever, you know, um, nobody cares really, uh, at those races beyond who won the race. And so, uh, we didn't really think we could beat Legion in a sprint, although we sure as hell tried at the end of the race. Um, so the game plan was just light it up and see, see what we could do, get our name on the map and, you know, try and try and make that 5% chance happen. So two and a half years later, some random guy on a podcast does remember that, you know, it, it took me a hot second to remember that third in that race was Ty Magner because Legion swept it. And then your teammate, Scott McGill, got fourth and uh, Sean McElroy, again, one of your teammates gets fifth. So, you know, like you guys attacked and then when you got brought back, you attacked again and then you just kept going. Does that kind of mirror your approach to bike racing now, you know, as a, a mature bike racing adult of 25, two years later from that, are you still the attack guy? At heart, I still am, but I have learned, especially on this team this year with Project Echelon, I am learning to reel myself in a little bit and hold myself back so I can be better in the finish because... The, the team just has put me into that position where I can make that my only job uh, and and the rest of the attacking and the covering moves and all of that can um, we can dish that out to the other riders and, you know, kind of save me for the sprint. Of course, I was on the attack a little bit at Sunny King, um, but yeah, that's just how it goes. You got to be alert when the race is on. Um, I do have to point out that your photo on uh, pro cycling stats from a Volo is epic. Like the hair is way below your shoulders. Yeah. 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 That is a thing of beauty. It's pretty good. But um, so you were about to tell us about the transition from a Volo to Texas roadhouse before you got onto echelon. Yeah. So uh, end of 2021, you know, I, I kind of had a slow season in 2021. Uh, I, st I was graduating college in the spring and coming out of COVID. And I just, you know, had a lot on my plate and wasn't um, the most fit when racing started. Not, not really where I probably should have been or wanted to be. And um, it took me most of the season to kind of get started. I had some good results at the end of the year um, in Europe and was hopeful that I could get another UCI contract. Um, I had, I was moving on from Avola because I was now over 23. So I had no option there anymore, unfortunately. Then, you know, no UCI contract panned out and I was looking at the American teams, which, which teams I had good connections on, which teams I thought were strong and could get me to where I wanted to be. And I landed on, Texas Roadhouse, uh, Curtis Tolson, the director there, was a part-time coach at Marion, helped out with the uh, track program there a lot. So I had known him during college as a coach, and I knew some of the other riders there because a lot of them are from that Indy area, Indy Louisville 
area. Uh, so I'd race against them a lot and knew that it was a really solid squad. And, you know, we had, we had a great season last year. It was a lot of fun. Got some good results. And they got me to where I am this year with Project Echelon back at the UCI level. So you know, I'm, I'm really happy with how that went. Was it a little bit of a kind of a gut punch to go from a UCI continental squad? And, you know, like you had good UCI level results at the end of the year. Uh, the Schwalbe uh, Omloop race, you know, you I think you finished in the top 20, if I recall correctly. And, you know, Joe Martin, you did you did good in Joe Martin. I mean, top 10 in the points classification in mountains. So like, it wasn't like you just blew it off, but you know, going from Conti to domestic was that kind of a gut punch for you? Yeah, it, it definitely was. Um, I was really motivated to, to get back to road racing. I was, I was even trying to, kind of form a team, uh, pull some sponsor, pull, pull some team together out of some other teams, some sponsors, maybe make a merger. I, I was talking to a lot of people trying to create a new UCI team because there just weren't a lot of options at the end of 2021. Um, I think like the only UCI teams in the US were Legion and like, human powered health was, I, I can't even think of any other Conti teams that were around, uh, in the uh, last year, I guess. Um, so I, I think there was space for that. And, you know, now it seems that, uh, that's showing through with echelon stepping up to Conti and, um, that, that space is being filled. So it, it was just another year later. Um, but yeah, the point is I was doing everything I could to, to stay at the UCI, uh, level and it, it just wasn't panning out and, you know, that's okay. Uh, and I think it, it really, it really motivated me. It really made me realize what I wanted and what it was going to take to get there. And, you know, I think that in large part is why I'm racing how I am this season. So. Uh, in the end, maybe it was worth it. Because your 2022 was a lot of racing, you know, here in the United States, close to 30 races. Uh, you you doubled up a couple of days, which I, I find to be exciting as a master's racer who also races one twos. I, I like that you doubled up with Littleton and a few others. But, you know, your your results last year were good. You know, you weren't, the dominant guy, but you had, you know, you won the amateur at Littleton, you finished second at Longmont and, you know, finishing third at Benton Park, I think might be one of your big standouts. I don't know. Like, do you, do you put third at Benton Park above a second at Snake Alley? Which one do you think tops your list there last year? That's a, that's a good question. Uh, I think third at Benton Park was maybe my biggest result last season. I, that's that's what I would say. You know, it was the biggest teams there, uh, best competition. Uh, second at Snake Alley was obviously big, but the the field just wasn't quite as deep. Because that Benton Park race played out rather interestingly. Uh, it was a for you. It had to be a wait and see 
because with Texas Roadhouse, there was no point for you to drag back the two breakaways guys that were up the road who had spent most of the second half of the race away. So that was all best buddies, Alfredo Martinez and uh, Alfredo Rodriguez <laughs> was combining Alfredo and Clever, the guys who ended up going first and second there. You know, it was all best buddies and all Miami Blazers trying to to bring that back. And you were the guy who got to lurk in the background there. And that's a long drag sprint. Do you do you remember how that kind of played out? Yeah, um, I actually can't remember when the break got caught. I think it was in the first half of the lap on that last lap, maybe. Uh, so yeah, I've been kind of lurking, hanging out in the top 15 wheels, kind of at the back end of that and just hanging out because yeah, Fergus Arthur was up there up the road and, uh, obviously he showed us speed week this year that he, he can make that breakaway stick. And we knew that at the end of last year, uh, and, and he almost did it that day. So, you know, I was really comfortable just being able to sit in there and then coming down the last straight, I know I was in maybe 10th wheel or sorry, the back straight. Uh, it was, uh, you know, two corners to the finish, two left-handers. And I was sitting maybe 10th wheel. My teammate Drew Dillman was uh, probably four wheels ahead of me. And I kicked myself to this day for not yelling at him to take me around the point of the race. Because I think if I had been I think if we'd been one, two through those last two corners, I probably could have won the thing. And instead I was sprinting. I, I, I moved up to like sixth wheel before the second to last corner. And then I moved up another two spots or maybe just one spot. I think I came around two people on the last straight. So yeah, on, on the second to last straight, I moved up another spot and then I, I was sprinting from more positions back than I would have liked to. And I, I was making up ground. I just didn't have enough road. So when you got a teammate like Dizzle, you should always push him to go as hard as he possibly can. Cause you know, that back stretch is a slight downhill. So you're able to build up a lot of speed for free. And then that final sprint, that finishing stretch, kind of eerily similar to the one at Sunny King with a little bit of a false flat up. I'm starting to sense a trend about Cade Bickmore sprinting. You like it when when it's a little bit uh, hard right there at that very last part. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So the courtship with Project Echelon. Tell us about the courtship process, the process by which you are brought into this group of gentlemen this year and kind of taught what your role would be. Do you want me to start from like, before I'm even signed or how, how do you want me to talk about that process? Talk about it from Tucson, from the team camp on. So like you show up in Tucson on the day that you guys land, you know, tell us about that. Yeah. So at team camp, you know, we had just come off of, um, Tucson bicycle classic where we had Tyler win the overall, but we kind of had to do a lot of work and didn't really get to go for the uh, stage results that we were, you know, hoping to set up for, uh, which is good. I mean, it just shows that it was a deep field and we really had to fight for that GC there. Uh, we, we also made some mistakes, uh, which I think is good at one of those early season races where the stakes are relatively low, because uh, if you make mistakes there, you can learn from them. If everything goes smooth, 
maybe you don't realize that uh, there's things that you need to clean up, communication that you need to do better. But I, you know, I hadn't had a chance to prove myself as a sprinter there. Although I think a lot of the guys at team camp knew that that's uh, kind of who I was. Um, you know, I've had this identity crisis of, am I a sprinter? Am I a, like attacker, puncher type rider? Um, for kind of the last couple of years. Uh, and, and I'm starting to accept the sprinter role a little bit more and train towards that a little bit more. But, uh, you know, at, at team camp, we did some sprint activities, uh, you know, some team races where we had the, uh, we, we, we called it the road race squad versus the crit squad doing lead outs against each other. Uh, a lot of smack talking and, uh, I was on the road race squad and, we actually kind of dunked on the crit squad, which was funny because it was only a one kilometer lead out effort and uh, the sprinters were going into it pretty, pretty confident. Uh, so it was, it was fun to, to give them the smack a little bit, put it back in their face after they were talking it. Uh, but after that, and uh, just the whole camp, I think everybody uh, realized that, you know, I, I could be, maybe the team's best race finisher uh, in the, in those real true just sprint scenarios you know they sent ever since that point they've really been hyping me up and uh you know just getting me to tell me to focus on my job and they'll take care of the rest kind of which is it just makes things really easy when i can sit back a little bit more and you know just get ready for the sprint and focus on that how does it differ here in the united states between crits and road races, basically all the races that we do here in the United States, again, compared to, you know, the way that you approach sprinting at, you know, like the Herald Sun Tour that you did in 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 2020, or when you were racing uh, Tour of Utah, you know, or the Columbia 2.1 that you were talking about, like those seem to have a much more traditional very formalized lead out process as compared to somewhat of the chaos that we experience in the final 5k in a crit or in a road race. Yeah. I, I think a lot of that just comes down to how fast and how much power those lead out trains have to put out at the races like that to, to lead their guy out. And if a team has spent, all day you know fighting for like controlling the race for their gc rider they really are not going to have the firepower at the end of the day to control the lead out like nine out of ten times there's definitely exceptions to that rule but in general it's the race just wears on people each team is fighting for kind of a different objective and uh the really strong strong sprint teams that can just focus on the lead out at the end just have such a powerful train that, uh, you know, sometimes there's two, maybe three trains fighting each other, but usually one really takes over because they stayed the freshest and they are just like the most powerful in the day. And that I think really cleans up the whole, uh, lead out and lead into the sprint a lot of times, just because uh, you can't have, uh, a, a two man flyer kind of competing with this five man lead out train. It just, it, you can't, it's not sustainable. It's not physically possible uh so it definitely changes the dynamic compared to at these crits they're just shorter 
the courses are tighter, so your sustained power is uh, like just more limited. And it makes it, it, it just gives more opportunity for guys to kind of fly in and, uh, you know, dive bomb a corner or, um, you know, come around a lead out train at, uh, you know, a time that makes things a little bit more chaotic towards the finish. It seemed like last year when I was watching Project Echelon, they excelled in freelancing. So you had somebody like Ethan or Monk who were very good at freelancing off of the work that other teams were doing. I, I can think specifically about the way that, you know, they came in second and third at um, not Lake Bluff, but Lake Ellen at Intelligentsia. And, you know, they just, they it didn't seem to be coordinated. It seemed to be, okay, I have an opportunity here. And, you know, even if you look at the way that George, um, the Humble Hammer Simpson won at, um, at uh, Fayetteville two years ago, you know, it was a solo move for him, but it was a very opportunistic move as compared to, you know, like the classic Columbia High Road lead out train where Mark Cavendish wins by a kilometer coming around George Hincapi sort of thing. So even with the exception of maybe Legion of Los Angeles, you know, I it seems to be that in a sprint, in a crit, it's a lot more chaos and a lot less orchestrated dance. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think part of it too comes down to in, in the U S scene a lot, you, you know, these riders aren't being paid a huge salary. It's, it's getting better, but in general, most of the guys aren't being paid to do a specific job where uh, like how they are in the world tour. And so everybody's going for their own results, trying to build their resume, trying to you know get on a better team next year or, or just improve their own team and get better sponsorships. So they maybe can be paid next year, can be paid better next year. Everybody has uh, their own uh, agenda in a race a lot of times, uh, e- even even within teams. And the the more professional or the higher level that a team reaches the more that sorts itself out and riders take on more specific roles. Um, but without having those roles, you do get this more opportunistic racing where uh, the whole team isn't necessarily committed to one goal. So each rider is taking their own opportunities, their own chances at making something happen for themselves. Um, so yeah, that's, that's part of it. Uh, I think, Another part is, like I said, just the sustained power and the, the way that these courses are formulated and the, the how short the race is leads itself to um, not having quite as organized of a lead out and having more, yeah, just more chaos. One thing I did want to talk about is this concept of, of what is the critical metric or metrices in sprinting? You know, a lot of us have been told in bike racing that your watts per kilo are the most important thing. And I think that's a potentially an outgrowth of Zwiftification, you know, where it's all about watts per kilo. And uh, to a certain extent, I think that gets reinforced by watching, you know, grand tours where you've got these riders who are like all of 50 kilos and one point 
seven, five meters tall. So like they weigh basically next to nothing and they're just a pair of lungs and legs. And we fixate on that. And I don't believe that watts per kilo particularly matters too terribly much when it comes down to most American bike racing. Now, that's not to say it doesn't matter at all, but, you know, and I'm not going to say like a 300-pound person can beat an Ethan Crane in a sprint if he's capable of putting out 2,000 watts. But I think in crit racing, and I'd like to get your opinion on this, that it's much more about watts at threshold and then just plain and simple timing. You know, like, how critical is it just to be there versus being the strongest or the person capable of blowing a light bulb out with your power? Yeah, I mean, 95% of sprinting is just being in the right place at the right time. Uh, and then the last 5% is your kick at the finish. Because, uh, I mean, there are a lot of riders who routinely finish like top five and they're never going to win a race because they don't have the kick. But uh, there's also a lot of riders who have a phenomenal kick and they always start from 17th wheel and they finish, you know, maybe at the back end of the top 10, but they're never going to come around that many, that many riders in the finish. So, you know, there's this sprint forward position that happens before the the real sprint even takes place. And that's almost the most important part of the race. I think that's, isn't that kind of what you said also with uh, Benton Park? You just sprinted from the wrong spot. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, it's, there, there was this fear of hitting the wind too early and, and making my own move too early, uh, where then I would be coming into the last straight a little bit fatigued and not be able to to sprint that well. But I think I actually probably would have finished in the same position, uh, if not better, had I just gone to the front, even if it was just solo and I didn't even have, I, I didn't even tell Drew anything and just went around him and went to the front. I think I probably still could have finished that race third, um, just, just from the positioning and, and reducing my sprint. But, uh, yeah, positioning is, is so, so, so important. For the sprint. So talk about that because this year, and specifically, this year's not very long yet. I mean, it's still relatively new. You finished on the podium at Redlands in that crit, which is obscene and insane. You finished in the top five, so the wide angle podium, and stage two of Gila, which is one of the best races in the United States. And then you win the crit at Gila. And this is all before we're getting to the point of talking about Sonny King, where you win the second race of the American Criterium Cup, arguably the best crit-specific competition that you've come up against this year. You know, when it comes down to where you've matured in the last year and now having a dedicated role and the ability to step back, are you seeing more opportunities presented to you? You know, are you seeing it easier to find the right spot in the field to launch your sprint from? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I didn't quite get it right at Redlands and I didn't quite get it right at stage two at 
Gila. Um, Redlands was a bit tricky. We, you know, we're, our, the main focus was just keep Tyler and Ricky in good spots on GC. And then uh, Sam uh, had had a bike problem early, early in the race. So he was in a, he was on a spare bike that he didn't exactly trust a whole lot. His position wasn't quite, quite right. He was having some issues, but he was like kind of my last lead out guy. And uh, I think that limited his ability to kind of help me navigate into the position I really wanted to be in. And, you know, I still finished that race well, but I would have liked to have been uh, one or two wheels further up going into like the fourth to last corner. And, that, you know, then I think I would have been right around with Corey and Noah for, for that finish sprint. Uh, whereas I ended up being on Robin's wheel coming through the last turn and then uh, coming able to come around him, but not really being able to fight for the finish. And then stage four at, or stage two at, uh, Gila, we had a great lead out set up and I just got bumped off the train and then lost in the swarm. And uh, I had a really good sprint, but I was coming from literally 20 wheels back with 300 meters to go. So I, you know, fourth was an incredible result. I, I felt like um, given where I came from, but I was also super, super disappointed because I knew that if I was in the right position, I, I should have been fighting for the win there. Talk to us about that. Talk to us about getting bumped off the train because we've seen recently with Spartanburg and and we saw last year with Salt Lake City and a bunch of other times, the argy bargy portion of crit racing where there's bumping and there's elbows. And if you go back to Tulsa, there's yelling, you know, how controlled is the chaos when you're going into a sprint finish, like at stage two of Gila, or when you win two days later in the, in, in the crit, like how much control slash professionalism is there and how much of it is chaos? Uh, yeah, there's, I mean, I would say the team had really good control, um, except for then, then I got bumped off the train. So maybe our control wasn't that good after all, because if you lose your sprinter, then do you, do you really have control over what's going on? Uh, probably not. I would say, um, you know, I think we were in a good position. I think it was a little bit of a lapse of focus for me, just like sitting on the train. I, when I lost it, it was like two and a half K's out. And then no radios at Gila. So I couldn't really radio. T- I couldn't radio the team. I was trying to yell at them, but I was a bit too far back. And uh, we weren't going all that fast because we were, the, we were conserving a little bit because it was still two and a half days to go to the finish. And we wanted to, you know, be able to really hit it when it mattered uh, to, to be able to hold the front. That was the game plan going in. And so the, it was pretty swarmy at the, at the back. Uh, and because I'm, or at the back of the train, which is where I was. And so I just uh, didn't fight quite hard enough, I think, to keep the wheel, got pushed out. And I was like, you know, whatever, it's two and a half case to go to the finish. Uh, I'll, I'll find my way back. And then I didn't find my way back. And that was like, that's the mistake that I made where and, and what my goal to change for the crit on stage four. That, that was my big goal was like, I can't have that lapse in focus. Every moment matters sticking on the train. Like I have to do everything I can to fight for that spot and just sit there, stick it. And, you know, I was able to accomplish that on stage four, which I was really happy about. 
uh, we controlled like the whole race. It was just echelon on the front the whole time, pretty much. And, uh, you know, anytime I was getting swarmed, I was just holding that wheel, holding steady for, you know, the whole 43 miles of that race, basically. Uh, and then actually in the finish, uh, I lost my last teammate with half a lap to go. The team did so much work that we just burned through all our guys. And I was, I was riding solo for the last half lap. Uh, so I was, I was just surfing wheels and, you know, found the right spot kind of, with the same mentality, just like holding, holding the wheel that I wanted to hold, uh, which ended up being the, the Medellin sprinter. Um, I think Brian Sanchez, is that his name? Yeah. I th- is it like B-R-A-Y-A-N? I think like, I didn't know if it was Brian or Brian or, uh, I'm getting a, a real education on on Central and South American bike racers spellings of names this year for for various reasons because of Team Medellin and some of the NCL riders, the and even Legion of Los Angeles. But like with the, it's kind of like this head forward mentality that you need to maintain, and I think it needs to be maintained throughout an entire crit to a certain extent where you always have to be pushing forward. You can never just rest on your laurels for where you are. And you see it more and more towards the end where, you know, you kind of have to, you can't sit back. You can never wait to react. You always have to be proactive in what you're doing. And, you know, everybody in the field at that pointy end of the race is trying to do the same thing, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, some, some of the guys are trying to do it in support of their teammates. So they're maybe stepping out into the wind a little bit extra to, you know, open up basically a new protected position for their guy, assuming they're on their wheel. They're stepping out into the wind on the side of the Peloton to give their guy a wheel where there wasn't originally any space uh and then some of the guys are the protected riders sitting on the wheel and some of the guys don't have a teammate and they're you know just just doing that for themselves yeah staying staying forward always forward but when you're sitting there at the end of the train people want you to not be there and i mean it's not an impolite thing it's the nature of competition they want where you are they're not going to just passively sit behind you. The whole goal is to get in front of you. And your job, for lack of a better term, no, I mean, it straight up is, your job is to tell them no, you know, physically tell them no. How do you establish that space? How do you box out? You know, what are the skills or tools that you are going to use to be like, no, I ain't moving. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is awareness. It's knowing where you're being swarmed from, where, where other riders are coming from when, when you're setting up for the corners and when you're, um, you know, coming to any kind of pinch point, because that's really where the bumping off the wheels tends to happen is at the pinch points. Anytime another rider has their bars in front of your bars, you're at a disadvantage. You're that they own the space more than you do because you know, your bars are the control center on your bike. And if the, if their bars are in front of yours, you're kind of, your bars are kind of at their hip. You're, you're just like at a much less strategic place to be positioning yourself. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of times the best thing you can do is, uh, kind of 
swarm up and take up space so then they can never even come up fully alongside you so their bars never get in front of you um sometimes that doesn't it's hard to do when you're also trying to focus on (laughs) sitting on your train because you're you're not trying to also pass your teammates in the process so you're you're there's this control of the space that you have to have where you're controlling the curb your distance to the curb and making like only allowing a little bit of space there maybe maybe one rider can fit through there but not a lot of riders so you don't get fully swarmed uh and then talking to your teammates ahead of you telling them where you need them to be so then you're staying on their wheel during that whole process it's getting your elbows out a little bit and uh pushing into people when they're coming into you a little bit uh it's it's you know super complicated super super tricky to to do right uh there's just so many things going on at the same time and uh, honestly a lot of it is just feel at this point i'm not really thinking about what i'm doing i'm just trying to just i'm just doing it it's you know it's it's race brain it's uh i i don't even know fully how to describe it uh but at this point i just have that through the experience that i have i've i've learned how to do that and it's it's all more or less on impulse because there's not there's not time to think there's not time to process exactly what you, what you have to do in each each moment to hold that wheel a little top gun right there you don't get to think up there if you think you're dead uh the original top gun not maverick but we've seen recently certain you know we've seen recently videos of curbing you brought the word curb into the conversation and triggered my memory of riders taking another rider literally to the curb. You know, we saw that last year multiple times at Salt Lake once it got done to Ethan and it it was gratuitous. You don't know what precedes it. You know, you only get to see the video clip that shows one rider legitimately leaving or not legitimately, but literally leaving the Peloton to take a second rider to the curb. And, you know, because of that action, both of them are now gone, you know, uh, effectively, especially if it happens late in the race. And then we see Spartanburg where it's not. I mean, there was a moment where Danny Summerhill was trying to come up on the outside going into turn three and he got pinched into the barriers. That's not curbing in my mind. That's just being in control of your space by Legion. But you're you're seeing more of this aggressiveness, probably be because we've got more video cameras out there, but you're starting to see it. Where do we draw the line between guarding your space, making yourself bigger, and then the things that should not be involved in the sport, which is purposefully putting somebody into danger. Yeah, it's it's a really tough line to draw. It's it's super fuzzy. If somebody had the right answer, things would be really simple, but I don't think anybody really fully does. I don't there's there's no rule that really encompasses it i mean there's you're not supposed to deviate from your line but what does that mean where is your line whose line is where it's 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 all really hard to say because you know when you're following somebody your line is their line and then when you're coming around them then your line changes so then you are changing your line so is that deviating from your line no you have to like 
that for there to be a bike race, you have to allow people to change their line in that instance to come around somebody or otherwise everybody's just following each other around in a single file line and it's not exciting. Um, you know, protecting your space on the, on the outside of the corner, definitely that's okay. Uh, you, you know, I, a hundred percent, that's just, that's like a strategy to the strategy. That's part of racing. Uh, there's definitely the other side of the line where riders are being aggressive and swinging out into another rider, uh, just like aggressively, maliciously, clearly that's on the other side of the line. I there's a lot of middle ground there. That's really hard to define. And, um, a lot of that, you just, you call it a racing incident crashes happen from it. You call it a racing incident because each rider thinks they're in the right. Uh, and, and arguably they are, um, from each of their own viewpoints. But at the end of the day, it comes down to some matter of respect between riders that we don't both want to kill each other when we're fighting for the same space. Uh, you, you know, if, if nobody, it's a game of chicken and if nobody chickens, then we're both going to eat shit and break bones, break bikes, uh, you know, hit heads. It's, it's a mess and nobody, nobody wants that. So would you support having some kind of a race jury for these big races, like these legitimate top tier American crits and stage races, given the ubiquity of video, you know, and GoPro and all of these things, would you be in favor of having, if an incident happens and there is a reason to look at it, having that stream given to a group of peers to say whether or not this deviated from the professional standard of care that we have all agreed to within the social contract of criterium racing. Yeah. I'm, I'm very open to that idea. However, like something, some, some rules would just need to be very clearly defined and it would be, I think, I think it is the right thing to do to create a jury, but you have to, spend a lot of time with some like really good current and former racers, I think to define rules of what is fair racing and what is across the line and, and malicious, aggressive behavior. Yeah. It, it would just, it's really hard to come up with uh, just concrete guidelines. Very, you know, this is right. This is wrong. It's, it's really hard to draw those distinctions. Um, so that's the first step. Professional standard of care is always created by those who've got the capacity to do it, the training, education, and experience to do it. And it always is gray. I mean, there's clearly, you can talk about medical malpractice, legal malpractice. You can talk about bad driving, good driving. I mean, there's reckless driving over here. And then there's just inattentiveness, you know, there are a variety of different places where there is this gray. Let's spend a few minutes here talking about Sonny King and about your accomplishment at Sonny King. Not the cart before the horse in any way, shape, or form, because it's been over a week and a half now. By the time that this airs, everybody knows that you won at Sonny King and that um, Alfredo Rodriguez got Ala Philippe. 
And you were the, I can't remember who Ala Philippe, Ala Philippe. Was it Wout Van Aert or? Yeah, I can't. No. Yeah, I remember the Ala Philippe. It's weird how I don't even remember the winner of the race. I just remember Ala Philippe uh, posting up early. Yeah, I, I, I can't remember. But you're, you are now equally famous. I don't know about equally famous, but. <laughs> <laughs> In my mind, you are. Um, you know, Alfredo started to celebrate because he started to celebrate and you never gave up and you ended up walking away with the win. Now, there is a fact that we have to point out about the way that Sonny King was designed and the way that the course was. The truss and the finish line were separate. Yeah. Was that a fact that everybody in the field knew that the truss was in front of the actual finish line? Uh, I mean, you have to assume so. We, we crossed that line so many times. Um, I mean, we start on the line. Alfredo got a call up, started on the line. You know, if you, you have to assume that everybody knows that. And if they don't know that, then that's of their own fault, I think. It's, it's just knowing the course. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that was the issue for Alfredo. Maybe it was, but I, I don't think it was, and I don't think it should really matter. Was this just a situation where he got ahead of himself? Yeah, I think so. I think he just, I mean, he, he opened up a sprint and he, he opened up daylight, but Ty and I were coming from a couple of extra wheels back. And so I think when Alfredo made the first check, he didn't. He saw the space, but he didn't see the speed that Ty and I had coming up on him. And so he, he was, yeah, got a little ahead of himself. Uh, and he won the race the year before. He, like, knows he's a good finisher. He, yeah, he, he just got caught up in it. And, uh, yeah, I'm, people do it all the time, think they have it. And, and then actually, they didn't quite have it. And you, and you caught the benefit of that here. So dial back. The last three laps of Aniston, of Sonny King, it's a four-corner crit. It's not flat in any way, shape, or form. Is there anything about the course that we, the viewer, don't understand from just watching the video or watching the live stream? Is there something about this course strategically or tactically that at 28, 29, 35 miles an hour you start to really see. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the back straight of the course is, uh, is pretty low power because it's downhill and you just, uh, everybody's setting up for that corner at the bottom, which is pretty fast and not very good pavement. It's, um, on the outside, there's a, a patch of, um, like concrete next to a patch of tarmac. And there's a kind of weird, like uh, seam in the middle of it. And, uh, there's a, a sewer grate dip like 30 meters before the corner, maybe kind of on the outside. So there's all these things that are, you know, in the line that you would probably want to take if everything was really smooth, pave, smooth pavement. And then you're coming screaming down this hill into it and everybody's like a little bit nervous. And most people are kind of coasting into that. And you just came up the, the finish straight hill, which is pretty hard and you're a little bit taxed from that effort. And, after you do it, uh, well, it was supposed to be 60 times and then they shortened the race. So it was 45 times, I think, you know, you're, you're, you're pretty taxed from that. So you're taking your recovery on that section. Um, 
So all of that plays into the setup into turn three. And then nothing really happens between turn three and four because it's pretty short straight. And then the finish corner, the, the last corner is pretty, pretty good, pretty straightforward. And then you kick up this uphill, I think like 300, 350 meter sprint. Was there a reason why they shortened it by like a quarter of the race? So I, I don't actually know. I heard that it was because they didn't have lights and turns. Uh, and so they were trying to finish the race before uh, kind of twilight ended. We, we finished like, I think after sunset, but while it was still a little bit, there was a little light uh, coming through still. And I think that was because, yeah, they shortened it because they didn't have the lights, which I thought was interesting because last year we did that race fully in the dark. Like we started after sunset, I think. But that, that was that was what I heard. I don't know if that's actually true. Take us to three to go. You know, things have kind of, I mean, at this point in time in a race that's got a, a length like Sonny King, you kind of know at, at three or five K to go that this is going to come down to a, a field sprint. Um, all the pretenders are gone now. It's just the guys who are going to be up there at the end. What happens next? Uh, Miami Knights took control of the front and they did a lead out and everybody else is in this kind of washing machine of like, catching the swarm around and then settle, trying to settle into a position and then usually getting swept back when the next swarm comes around um, and then doing it all over again. So you're kind of cycling through into the front positions and some people are able to hold their position up there better than other people are, kind of fight their way in and fight to keep their position and manage their space better. And for me with three to go, I was, I, I had kind of been sitting on a little bit, hadn't been very assertive for the, let's say 10 laps prior to that, because I realized that a breakaway wasn't probably going to happen. I didn't, I didn't really think it was going to happen. And, and if it did, my teammates were on that coverage and I was, I was getting ready to just focus on the sprint. So I'd been sitting back and then three to go. I was, I was literally talking to myself in my head. I was like, you have to get in this race now because I kept losing positions. I wasn't being assertive enough and I wasn't staying forward. I wasn't doing that always forward thing and staying up at the front of the race. Very well. I wasn't protecting my space very well. And I was like a little bit mad at myself, like get your head into the game. Like this is the finish. Like you've been waiting all race for this. Your team is depending on you. Like you have to get your head in the game because this is, this is go time two to go comes. And I was more or less in the same position. And I had the same, same exact conversation with myself, uh, like between corners three and four. And I was like, all right, like, this is coming down to the wire. Like I need to be a couple more wheels up. I for sure need to be, I, I mean, the, the goal was to be third wheel coming out of the, the last corner on the last lap. And so that, that's, that's my mentality. That's where I want to be. And I was, I don't know, 13th wheel. Why be third? Like what was, I mean, obviously there's a very specific reason why you didn't want to be first and why you don't want to be 10th. But it's interesting that you had made this decision that third coming out of the last corner with 350 meters or so to go, that's the spot you want to be. Yeah. I mean, it's a long sprint. So, um, you don't want to be right on the front, but also it's, you know, it's short enough where you don't want to have to come around a lot of people because it, it, there's not that much time for it to open, to open up and it's an uphill 
I don't know. It just it just favors towards um, going a little bit longer, going going from further out. So it's an interesting balance of long sprint, but not that long. That's kind of what we had just decided in our pre race meeting. It was a little bit arbitrary. Like it's you don't for sure have to be third, but if you're you know if you're fourth, you're fine. But if you're sixth or seventh, you're probably not where you want to be. And so it's just a good it's a good target. Things are always happening. You might be shoulder to shoulder with somebody. So are you really third wheel or are you fourth wheel? I don't know. And this is a conversation you're having with yourself at 35 miles an hour. Yeah. I wasn't having that conversation with myself. It was, it was all that get your head in the game. Let's go. You got you to gotta be up on, on these front wheels, not, not back here. But I knew I was in the wrong spot because I was 13th and that's not very close to three. Did you have any teammates with you? Yeah, I had teammates around me. I had kind of been bouncing back and forth between uh, Colby's wheel and Will's wheel. Uh, and then Sam was like a couple of wheels ahead of us. And uh, I was trying to figure out which side of the course I wanted to to make my run on on the last lap and, and position from. And initially we had said we wanted to be on the inside going into the last corner. But because of the way the tarmac was on the outside and with that seam, people were really shying away from from going out before the third corner. And so I was leaving this gap of space. And so I called me on the inside, Will on the outside, and then Sam on the outside a little bit further up. And I decided to go right with like, uh, really just in the last half lap, that's when I saw the space. I was like, okay, this, this is for sure where I want to go. And then Sam saw the same thing. I popped around, I think Will, and then kind of got on Sam's wheel. I was about to yell at Sam, let's move. Let's go up. But he had like already, I, I saw him check his shoulder and see the same thing. And we just like, we're in sync. It felt like, and so we just both moved up on the outside in that corner. Um, I mean, I had taken that line quite, quite a few times during the race and figured out how to ride that seam. And I was really confident in it. And it seemed like Sam was too. So uh, we were able to move up four or five positions going into that third corner. And I think we came out of it like sixth and seventh or fifth and sixth, maybe coming out of that third corner, more or less held position. We might've even moved up a position before the last corner. I think we moved up this position because one of the uh, Miami Knights guys had pulled off. And then Sam was like shoulder to shoulder with Ty for fourth wheel, I think. And then I was like right behind him. So I was you know, fifth or sixth wheel. So what happens next? You know, I, I, I was on Ty's wheel. I was like, perfect, amazing. This is like a great spot to be in. I was a little bit shocked, to be honest, because I had just been having that conversation with myself, like, get your head in the game. And then I was like, okay, I did it. Now it's like time to finish the job. I, I don't know. It's, uh, I, you know, I just haven't quite been in that position in that big of a race before. And then Ty's opening it up, Ty's opening up and I like punch it hard out of the corner to make sure that my speed was up. And then I kind of hesitated for a second because I was thinking maybe I should stick on Ty's wheel for just a second because it's kind of a long sprint. And then he was opening up and then I saw Alfredo out of the corner of my eye on the right side of the road and he was going fast. And I was like, okay, I need to go now if I want to go. So I hesitated maybe one or two seconds on like halfway on Ty's wheel, kind of on the side of him. And then I just, I, it, it was time to open up and I just, you know, from there it was just going as hard as I could to the line. You came inside so, you know, it was, Alfredo was on the far outside, Ty was in between you and him, and then you were on the inside. 
it wasn't like any of you were shutting down doors or anything like that for anybody behind you. It just you guys were on a different level as far as the 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 speed that you were going. Your power numbers aren't blowing the doors off of anybody here. You know, you shared your power numbers with me, and you know, for that race, your your peak power was fourteen hundred, which is incredible for most normal human beings. But when you're talking about sprinting, you know, we're talking about German track sprinters who are putting out 2000 plus Watts and you've, you've raced against Corey Williams and, and Justin Williams. And those guys are putting out 17, 18, 1900 Watts. 1400 is not going to get the job done if you're going from a straight drag race, but here it very much gets the job done. How much of that do you owe to just the place that Sam brought you to and the smarts that you had to use the speed that you had with Ty Magner right there in front of you? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is just being able to balance uh, or or just uh, figure out when to hide on the wheel and when to step out into the wind. A lot of it, you also, you have to realize how much effort was in the race before that point too, which uh, just reduces the overall power in the final sprint. Um, you have to realize that I'm like 73 kilos. I'm not like a hundred kilo track sprinter. Um, there, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into it, but yeah, for sure. Having Sam to lead me up on the side, that was huge. Choosing to sit on Ty, I think, was a good decision there, uh, just just for the moment of hesitation there, uh, which just allowed me to shorten the time of my sprint a little bit, the full throttle portion of that sprint. Um, and then you have to look at my peak power was only, uh, I think, what was it, 1401, 1411, but my 18-second power was uh, 1268. So um you know i didn't peak that high but i sustained that power for a full 18 seconds pretty much so so if if we look at those 20 seconds that last 20 seconds of the race which will probably take us back to corner three you have three separate sprints that you are doing in that time and you know because we've watched we've watched clever martinez's gopro camera uh it's he's got such good quality gopro footage it makes me jealous but you know you can see three distinct Cade bickmore jumps each one becoming progressively stronger so you know if you look at the last two which is after you exit the final corner you've got the jump where you're with ty and you're pacing ty and then there's right when the hill picks up at the very last second, there's another level that's like a, a fifth gear that you hit. And that's the big one. That's the one that did it. And I think that's the one that Alfredo wasn't counting on or expecting was that next level pop right there. You know, how are you maintaining that level of discipline to know when you need to do that. Cause that's, there's a graduate level of crit racing right there. And I'm sure it's instinctual, but you've done this before. So you've clearly made up your mind that this is going to work for me. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's all a balancing act of balancing your position and your speed and your timing of, of starting your sprint and then how many matches you burned before and how many, how many, how much you saved to finish with. Um, and yeah, it, it all does come from experience. Um, but for sure it's, it's holding myself in a little bit. Like I'm, I'm fighting against my own instinct just a little bit to, to hold back in that moment to sit on Ty's wheel because it's like, Oh, I can see the finish line. I got to go. But then it's like, wait a second. Like, so maybe, maybe I am thinking that maybe, maybe it's not think or, uh, if you think you die, it's, uh, there, there is some kind of processing going on there. It's not, not full thoughts maybe, but there, there's some quick thinking there where it's, okay, it's going to be better for me to conserve here for two seconds and then pop as opposed to try and pop and sustain. And honestly, I'm not even sure it was the right decision. Maybe I could have sustained it for the whole time and I, I would have ended up like, uh, with maybe a little more daylight at the finish line, who knows? Or maybe I would have just blown up and and not been there. But oh, so you would have won. You would have really won, as opposed to winning. I I, I mean I I don't know. I don't know. I, I felt like I had good legs, and uh, you know, I wasn't I wasn't like fully cramped at the finish line or anything. So you know, I I, I think I had another couple seconds. What does it mean to you, winning Sunny King? This is your first big crit win this year with Project Echelon. It's one thing to win the crit at Gila. It's a stage race crit. You know, you don't have the crit specialist there. But when you go to Sunny King, you have Ty Magner. You have Alfredo Rodriguez. You've got Clever Martinez. You've got Brandon Fury. You've got all the best crit racers in the country for the last 12 months in that race and you walk away as the winner that day what does that mean to you yeah it was it was huge um i knew i was on good form coming off of gila obviously like um winning that crit was a big deal but stage race form is different than crit form so you know being able to get through those big days you have to focus a little bit more of your training time on endurance work on threshold work uh which doesn't necessarily help very much it and it can actually hurt your sprint performance a little bit so it's you know i wasn't totally confident going into sunny king that i was like going to be super good against these top crit guys because I wasn't sure how much my stage race training had maybe hindered my crit abilities, but Sunny King is a hard crit. So it takes it like it's taxing. It's, uh, it's not an easy course. A lot of the field gets shelled. Um, that's kind of a known fact. So I think that race, maybe I was a little more suited for with my stage race form than maybe Boise crit, which is more of a, it, it's very flat, very fast and like nothing the race isn't hard enough to tax the sprinters at all really um but yeah um winning winning sonny king was huge i i couldn't believe it for the first for the whole lap i was rolling around afterwards for the whole podium basically it was 
uh, really, really incredible. Um, I DNF that race last year. Uh, and then uh, just like I, I got ridden out of the group, I was, uh, just not fit enough at that point in the season last year. And then t- so to come back and then win it this year was really proving to my- something to myself that like the work that I had been doing was working and worth it and um, that I belong to be there. So it definitely gives me a lot of confidence going forward this season. So what's next? Yeah. Joe Martin stage race. Uh, I guess it'll be starting the day after this podcast comes out. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited back to stage racing. Um, had a, had a nice little rest period after Gila and then Sunny King thrown in there kind of in the middle of that. Um, and then a little bit more of a training block this week, just getting, getting dialed back in for stage racing. Uh, so I'm really excited for that. And I think I'll have some good opportunities there. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Rob. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the show. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows, wideanglepodium.com, for the full bevy of shows available there. Today's episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. And a special thanks goes out to Cade Bickmore for all his time and just being a wonderful guest. We will be back next week with our episode with Brandon Fury. We're checking in with him after his year has started now on a new team Miami Blazers we want to see what's going on with him and catch up with him and tell you all about it so join us here again next week for more stories from our Criterium Nation <laughs>